Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we are studying the third parak of Sefer Melachim. Now, you'll recall in Sefer Shmuel, when David finally becomes king, there are a string of prakim that describe David's great accomplishments. Those are then followed by David's sin with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah, and then more complex Prakim that follow with David's struggles and morally complex decisions that he has to make. But there's a, a string of Prakim that are just David doing the right thing pretty much one after the other. They're the, they're the, you know, the, the part of the movie where there's a happy soundtrack playing in the background and everything goes right. We have a similar structure when it comes to Shlomo. The next bunch of Prakim are going to reflect very positively on Shlomo. And it's important to understand that we're in that kind of ascendant, positive part of the Sefer because it helps us understand and interpret some decisions that might seem more questionable and to understand that the Sefer is saying that they are, that they are good, at least for the time being. So for example, to, to give this a little bit more of a concrete uh, basis, to give you a little bit more of a concrete example, the very first Pasuk in our Perek, we learn that Shlomo marries Bas Paro, the daughter of Paro. And we know, or we will know, that ultimately Shlomo's foreign wives including and particularly Basparo, are going to cause Shlomo to, to stray from Hashem. And so you could say that the parak is uh, criticizing Shlomo, or that we're meant to understand that this was a, a negative move, but as hopefully is clear now, the, the context leads us to understand that the parak is actually shining a positive light on this union. So why is that? Why does this union with Basparo reflect positively on Shlomo? It's because Shlomo doesn't marry her simply uh, because he and Basparo have so much in common. They have common interests and hobbies. This is a political marriage. It establishes and it reflects a stable relationship with Egypt. It's pointed out in the Das Mikra that there are other places in Tanakh where kings marry daughters of foreign rulers, but they were all marrying the daughters of kings of kind of the second order, right? Kings of a smaller regional power. This is the one example when a king of Israel marries a princess from a world power like Egypt, a dominant force in the ancient world. This marriage therefore demonstrates how powerful, how admired B'nai Israel and Shlomo were at this time. Of course, this is largely a legacy of David, but it's just important to understand what this marriage signifies in terms of the standing of Israel, of B'nai Israel, in the international arena. In that way, it's a, it's a natural continuation from last parak, when Shlomo established stability internally among high-ranking officials, among other people who might be jockeying for power. So last parak, he established his stability within the nation, and now we're being told that there is also stability from without. There is an alliance between B'nai Yisrael and a close relation between B'nai Yisrael and Egypt, and that demonstrates that this is a time of prosperity and security both within and without. And with all that groundwork laid, Shlomo can now start working on building the Beis HaMikdash. Now you remember that David wanted to build a Beis HaMikdash, but Hashem said, no, you can't build a Beis HaMikdash. First, I need to establish you a bias. I need, to, I need to, there to be dynastic rule. You have to hand the kingship to the next generation. And we discussed back then why that is. And, and we said that it reflects Hashem's need for stability before he would build a base of Mikdash. Before Hashem would agree to build a base of Mikdash, there needed to be stability in the monarchy, a stable dynastic rule in place 
in order for there to be a, a high enough threshold of peace uh, to build the base of Mikdash. And so now we've reached that. There is stability in terms of the monarchic rule, the dynastic rule. The, the, the keys have been handed over to Shlomo successfully, and he has a firm grip on power. There is peace within the nation, and now we're told there's peace from without, peace with Egypt. And now the time has come that we can finally begin building the Beis HaMikdash. And that's exactly uh, what we see the beginnings of in this parak. We learn that Shlomo goes to Giv'on to offer sacrifices on the Bama Gedola that is there, which was the major center of sacrifices, a major religious center um, uh, in the entire uh, country at the time. It was not in Yerushalayim. So we have uh, the Aron and the uh, kind of the major Mizbeach in two different places, obviously not an optimal uh, setup. Shlomo goes to give sacrifices there. Uh, and then he, uh, that night he has a vision in his sleep. And we're going to discuss the nature of that vision in a moment, but I just want to kind of close the loop here. When he awakes, he then goes back to Yushalayim and he gives sacrifices there. And according to some, this signals, and I think it's quite compelling, it signals a shift in the religious and ritual center of Eretz Yisrael from Givon now to Yerushalayim. So Shlomo went to almost kind of pay his last tribute to Givon as the center, and then he's now marking the beginning of the rise of Yerushalayim to supplant it and to unify the Aron and the Mizbeach to be together once more, the altar uh, and the ark. Now let's go back to Shlomo's nighttime encounter with Hashem. Hashem appears to Shlomo in a dream, and he offers Shlomo any, any wish uh, that he desires. What would you like me to grant you? And Shlomo, much to his credit, doesn't ask for riches or honor or length, uh, length of days. He just asks for wisdom. He says very humbly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm young and inexperienced and without knowledge. And in order for me to properly judge the people, uh, please grant me a knowing heart and mind uh, to, to serve the people in that way. And Hashem is very pleased with Shlomo's request. It's, uh, this run request obviously tells us so much about who Shlomo was. Hashem grants him this request, and he says that, uh, that because you didn't ask for these other things, the, the wealth and honor, they, they will come automatically with your request. I'll grant them to you in any case. So, uh, so it's this very beautiful and very telling uh, request from Hashem, which is really at the very heart of the parak. We then learn that Shlomo returns to Yushalayim, and immediately he puts his wisdom uh, to the test. In the very famous story of the two mothers, each one claiming one, one baby. The, the story goes as follows. There are two women, both of them are harlots, uh, and they uh, approach Shlomo with a dispute. Each of the mothers had a newborn child, and these mothers lived together. And, uh, and all was, was, was well until one night one of the mothers accidentally slept on top of their child and, uh, and the child died. So the woman who is speaking uh, says that she, she claims that the other woman um, accidentally asphyxiated, killed her child. And what that woman did was she then swapped the babies. And it made it seem as if this woman's child had, was the one who... Uh, had passed away, and the, the woman who had killed her child was uh, now in now holding, right now claiming as her own the other woman's 
baby. I know it's confusing, and I think actually the parak is deliberately told in a way that this narrative is told with no, with no names and with very similar claims, and everything is meant to be so parallel so that we as the reader are left almost trying to figure out who is who. It's, it, it's meant to elevate the fact that this was a very difficult, our, our sense, it elevates our sense that this was a very difficult case for Shlomo to judge. But I hope you got the, the basic contours of the story. Right? One, uh, one mother accidentally asphyxiates her child, swaps her child uh, with the other, pretends that hers is the living one, and the other mother was the one who accidentally uh, um, killed her child. As we know, Shlomo then uh, says, uh, you know, bring me my sword and I'll cut the baby in half. At which point, uh, of course, if we had not known this story for most of our lives, we would, have, we would be um, absolutely, uh, you know, astonished at this turn of events. But of course, we know the story, so it doesn't shock us. But it's meant to be quite shocking to us. And we're meant to feel the same shock that the mothers would have felt in that moment. Oh my goodness, Shlomo, how could you? When one of the mothers cries out, no, don't cut the baby in half, give the baby to the other woman, while the other woman says, okay, cut the baby in half, and neither of us will have the baby. And then, of course, Shlomo knows that the, that the baby belonged to the mother who had the Rachmanas, who had the mercy on the child, even if it meant giving up the child to this other uh, somewhat ruthless woman. So Shlomo right away uh, in this story demonstrates his divinely enhanced wisdom, his ability to judge the nation. The nation, we learn, uh, then finds out about this case and is in great awe of their brilliant king, capable of delivering justice, uh, even in the most difficult of circumstances. I'll just end with two brief notes. Firstly, when Avshalom wanted to seize the kingship from David, what did he do? How did he campaign? How, what, what, did he, what was kind of the major thrust of his, of his claim? So he played a, upon people's dissatisfaction with how David adjudicated their cases. He stood by the, by the road, people who would be going to see David, and he'd kind of win them over by talking to them about their cases and saying, oh, I would have judged differently, I would have judged in your favor. So we see that it was really absolutely central uh, that the, the king, this was one of the, the central responsibilities that a king had. It played a big role in the king's favorability among the people. The degree to which the king could adjudicate cases fairly was really a key to popular support. And so here, Shlomo has not only, just to put this into the broader kind of constellation of what we've established, Shlomo has not only solidified his power among the elites, people potentially jockeying for power, not only has he solidified his power in the international arena with marrying Basparo, but also in the court of public opinion. Shlomo has demonstrated to the people that he can do the job that they are uh, that they are most interested, perhaps, in him doing. Right? We, we I think, we say in American politics that uh, the uh, that that American that, that the presidency is often won is is always won on domestic policy. It's not won on international policy. There are some notable exceptions to that, but generally, uh, domestic policy wins the day. And I think this is an expression of that. That Shlomo's popular support and the popular opinion of Shlomo is very much informed by his ability to judge the people. And here he shows that he is a stellar. Uh, judge capable of justly uh, serving the nation. So that's, uh, uh, again, I think an important point. And I would just add as my final point, and I might be overreading here, but I, I'll, I'll put it to you for, you, for, for your consideration. I see a very powerful message in the story of these two mothers. 
And that is that the true selfless love of the real mother uh, leads her to withdraw from something and her claim to something in order to keep it whole. The mother was willing to withdraw from the baby because she felt that the most important thing was that the baby be kept intact um, rather than her being recognized as the true mother. And I can't help but think that this is somehow a commentary, a kind of very meta commentary on the whole of this Sefer. Because we know at the core, or one of the essential things that are going to happen in this Sefer is that the nation as a whole is going to be split in two. And the desire of often pretty wicked uh, men for power and control will come at the expense of the unity and the vitality of the nation. No one is prepared to make the selfless act of forfeiture uh, for the well-being of the nation in the way that the mother was willing to for her child. I leave that for you to consider. Of course, that is it for today. Chazak ve'ematz and happy learning.